So we left people dangling last episode because <laughs> I wanted to talk most... about Dirty John season two. <laughs> Have you watched it yet? No. Did you watch Dirty John season one? Every second. Okay. Was it, were you only watching it for Connie Britton's hair? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I was also watching it for the rest of Connie Britton. <laughs> I love that woman. What what is she in right now? I need to see. I need well, a... she's the executive producer of Dirty John season two. Yeah, but she's not in it. No, she's not in it. I don't know what she's in at the moment. Um, well, I can just so my boot then. I don't want to Dirty see. John season two is so what what they've done. The original Dirty John was about a guy who uh, sort of swindled Connie Britton and was a fraud, and his name was John, and yep. so hence Dirty John. Yeah. So now what they've done is it's, and this it's, was an LA Times. It was an LA Times podcast yeah. actually that got turned into something. Yeah. And it was great. It was good. Yep. Season two, I think, is actually even better. <gasps> but it, so what they've done is they've taken the premise of um, you know the shonky dude basically, yep. um, and or the in this case it's not so much that he's shonky, it's just, I guess, the power dynamics between a couple. And so the premise of it, Christian Slater is the bloke. Oh. Do you know, I, I don't mind a bit of Christian Slater. Well, you know, it was, I was thinking about has him. He ever done, has, has he ever, ever done anything appalling? Not that I'm aware of, but no. I was thinking, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, about the inherent qualities that some actors have that they bring to something. And I think mm. Christian Slater has an air of smugness. He's just sure. generally got this He's got a of, smirk thing happening. He's got a smuggy, smirky sort of vibe. But he's also sinister. He like is sinister, that's right. Sinister. There's, a, there's a sort of an interplay of smugness and sinisterness yeah. that he brings to everything. Sinisterness? That I don't doesn't know. sound right. Sinistry. <laughs> <laughs> Sinistorja. <laughs> um, so he... So he's, Christian Slater in Heathers, to me, is the yes. distillation of yep, Christian Slater. Totally agree. Mm. So he, I was thinking, like, imagine going through life with that quality. What it reminded me of is, and what I was going to say before that I'd said on the podcast, was I described Michael Fassbender and Dominic West, who was McNulty in The Wire, as having a rotten apple quality, where they're yeah. these handsome, handsome men. Yeah. But there's something in their face that you feel like if you take a bite that it's rotten to the core and that's yeah. their quality that they've got. And so, yeah, Christian Slater brings this, you know, he could be the loveliest guy in the world but he's just got this sinister smug quality. I know. Imagine like the breaking news, Christian Slater actually quite nice. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. So he's the bloke and Amanda Pete is the woman and the premise of it is, and, and this I'm not spoiling anything because this is established right from episode one, Um she, they have been a couple and been married for a long time, and mm-hmm. it's ended with her murdering him. And <gasps> so then it's sort of they're flashing back to what's right. occurred. So she, they've been uh, married in their twenties. They've had kids sort of fairly rapidly. She's been working part time and doing all the mothering, uh-huh. and while he's Doesn't studying, sound plausible. while he's doing a, a law degree, a medical degree backed up by a law degree. Right, so okay. she's sort of putting him through medical school, uh-huh. and law school, and. Uh, she's sort of had to, uh, over time she quits work herself and so forth. They're married for 20 years and then he dumps her for the his secretary at work. Amazing. Yeah. And so it goes from there and then she sort of unravels and it, it explores her unravelling. And so it's very complex because you certainly have some sympathy for her and how much she's invested in him to then be sort of, you know, dumped once she hits middle age. But also she murders him wow. and his new wife and so it's <gasps> and his new wife yeah and again this is all established in episode one right so i'm not spoiling anything um oh anyway God. it's this is based on a true story yeah oh 
God. See, it's okay. it's riveting. I couldn't stop watching it. It was I thought it was really good. And one of the fascinating things about it is, you know, we talked before about Connie Britton and how she clearly has not had any work done on her yeah. face, and yeah. it stands out because yeah. it's quite unusual um, when you're watching American actresses. Amanda Peet clearly never has either. She'd be about our age. And uh, I was Googling her just to see, because I remembered her face, but I couldn't recall having ever seen her right. in anything. Yeah, so I don't know who she is. So You probably know her if you saw her. So I went and Googled her, and one of the first things I came across was this article, that, an essay she'd written called Never Crossing the Botox Rubicon, and it was talking about oh. her coming to terms with ageing and right. um, how she was approaching it, basically. And it's it's a really interesting and intelligent essay, but she talks about how a bit like Connie Britton has discussed, that it's quite difficult to resist the urge to, mm. you know, try and cover up your wrinkles and so mm. forth. But it, it lends itself, and I assume this is why she was cast, in this particular role it works really well because she's a very beautiful-looking woman but she looks fully her age. Mm. She's got plenty of lines on her face and it works because you sort of have this sense of that she's getting older and she's ageing and her sense of desperation that now she's being dumped and she's sort right. of got Right, whereas if she had the trout pout and all the Botox, you'd just be like, it would be less. Well, yeah. I guess it's just that, yeah, if she, sorry, if the actress who playing it had mm. that, then it's it would feel less authentic. And you sort of need, you need her face to be fully mobile because she's showing this descent into madness and, mm. and you know, becoming a psychopath really so is she so she's kind of a sympathetic character yes and no it, it one of the things I love about it so much is that it's complex so yeah, right. you feel you know you sort of you have some dislike for the husband because of how he acts and certain mm. um, callous things he does but then you sort of hit a point where you feel like look you know it happens. He he's with somebody else. Move on. Let him have his life, and uh, and so you start to then feel less sympathy towards her. Mm. So you come and go where you have sympathy, and then you feel like now I don't have sympathy for you. And it it exposes really clearly how I don't know if you've ever ever had this happen to you, but uh, sometimes if you have a friend that becomes obsessive about something like being dumped mm. and their ex partner or whatever. Um, it gets wearing because yeah. they can't talk about anything but that and every conversation they pull around into being yeah. about that. And it it sort of explores quite effectively her friends and how they oh, she starts okay. to wear them down and they just get tired of her constant, you know, sort of oh, um, Wow, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, oh, it's great. It's I good. wonder though, like would would you be able to make a series right now today that looks at the complexities of what happened in the life of a man who went and killed his partner, like his ex and her new husband? Yeah, that's a really good question. Probably uh, not. Well, I don't know because I find those sorts of things fascinating because, you know, we as human beings we are all a mixture of things. We are mm. all a mixture of horrible things and nice things and sympathetic mm. things. Um, it's not so clear cut that she was good and he was bad and so that's what yeah. I like about it. Um, but, you know, certainly say in real life, in media reporting these days, people quite rightly jump on the re kind of reporting which is he was, a great he was guy. such a great yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, I guess because there's, there's this sort of metronomic regularity of not only the crime itself um, of domestic violence but also, you know, that kind of sense of, disbelief that mm. someone who was oh such a great dad you know yeah could then kill their children you know like and I think I have a lot of sympathy with the view of people who say uh sorry if you killed your kids you're not a great dad like that's yeah you don't get to 
have that yeah. on a T-shirt anymore. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I'm always interested by, you know, what what kind of is permissible and what isn't in in popular culture. And I, I, you know, I don't think you'd get anywhere with a series at the moment that's like. No. You know, it's I've, interesting. Oh, sorry. No, um, you go. Just, just the um, thing also that I felt watching it, particularly because I was simultaneously reading Catelyn Moran's book about how much women have to juggle. It mm. reminded me because when this series starts, she's a, working as a teacher and she gets pregnant and it, so then she has to quit her job because, yeah. you know, once you've, you're having a child in that era, the mm. early early 1970s, you're not allowed to Oh, work so in it's that. set in the 70s? Yeah, so it's oh, set in the 70s. Yeah. Okay. It's the 70s and then the, it's sort of, I guess, the late 80s. So there's some good fashion and some good hair in it. Okay, in yeah. Um, so it just reminded me, you know, some of the discussions that we have and that you've written about to do with women and work, it's actually, it's very recent history yeah. because it's only 40 years ago that you had to not work at all. And I was yep. reflecting on my own childhood and thinking my mother worked from when I was about eight, but I really didn't know, I knew very few other people whose mothers worked full time. Yeah. In that era, in the 1980s, that was not very common. Yep. And uh, now, of course, you know, it's very common that, you know, yeah. you, most women that you meet um, in you know, I guess our age bracket would be working either part-time or full-time. Yep, yeah. Um, so it just made me think, right, this is why these things are still such issues because I think what basically happened is that we said, okay, um, all right, well, you can keep doing your job but you still have to keep your home yep. responsibilities. Mm. So we haven't quite navigated to a situation where it's it's equal. So that's why I think women crumble because you're like, yeah. right, I'm doing all of this stuff still and there's all these expect expectations of what you're like as a mother but then there's also if you want to have your career, you have to somehow fit that in at the same time. Someone to write a book about that. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I often think about, you know, something you wrote in The Wife Drought which I think is so true which is that perhaps one of the reasons that women get more exercised about you know whether the house is tidy or whatever is because they or well, what's going on with the kids is because they still are the ones mostly judged for that. Right. Yeah. No so, one walks into my house and goes, "Oh, well, Lee's partner must be a slob because her yeah. house is so messy." Yeah. It's it's you know Annabelle's kid who turned up at school without lunch. Did you today see crabs? Or, the crab, yeah. Crab crabs. Sure. Yeah. 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 Bloody harmony day. <gasps> um. Oh my gosh! You've just provided me with a series of brilliant segue points that are so <laughs> lush and quivering that I'm covered with excitement um, at the prospect of pursuing them. I have been on a bit of a crime spree. Uh, like I've, oh, been on, no, really? I've been on a crime, uh, you know, a crime reading spree. I have just finished reading a book about a serial killer. Mm. Um, it's one of my like dirty secrets is I do love a bit of a, a bit of a true crime. Um, yeah. And this is a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark and um, it's by um, a writer called Michelle McNamara. Mm. Um, so she is no longer with us. She wrote most of the book um, and died in her sleep oh. before finishing it. Um, she was a writer. She was married to Patton Oswalt. Oh, yeah. Mm. Okay, right. Yeah, the I've comedian. read his writings about the loss of right. his wife. Yeah. So – but in her spare time, and in fact it seems really to have gone on to consume much of her life, she was very, very engaged in trying to track down a criminal who was a serial rapist in the um, California of the late 70s and 80s. He was known as the East Area Rapist. Um, he was notorious in Sacramento. 
Um, and then he kind of moved around a bit in California, but in in those days, there wasn't that much by way of um, chat between the different police departments. And so he it wasn't until much later that they joined up all his crimes and they realized that he had murdered, I think, 11 people. Um, he moved on from um, being a, um, I don't know, there's no um, non-horrible way of saying this, a straight rapist to then murdering women and then murdering couples. So, yeah, he'd break into people's houses. And he was a very experienced prowler. And anyway, look, the book is um, really, really elegantly written um, and it is hugely evocative of that period in California and it's interesting because it tells you about how you're almost physically there. She talks about the layout of the neighbourhoods, the culture, how it worked and most of all she writes about this blanket of terror that this man bestowed on the areas where he was Mm. active, you know, people who just would take it in shifts sleeping, people who, um, you know, the the whole region sold out of deadlocks, you know, and people were cutting down um, trees outside their houses and putting in floodlights, just this extraordinary period. Wow. And, um, I mean, look, the story of the book itself is completely remarkable. So she died when the book wasn't finished and her husband and also um, some people with whom she'd been really closely collaborating online because she was in all these chat rooms and it's a really um, fascinating exploration of now what is quite a substantial movement of kind of amateur gumshoe detectives coming together on like Reddit and all those sorts of um, chat areas to compare um, information. She had requisitioned like 35 boxes of case files that she'd been chasing for years, that she was digitising and sharing. And essentially um, what eventually got this guy caught, the cold, cold, cold case, was that they had his DNA and they uploaded it onto a family DNA website. Oh, yeah. And it turns out that some cousins of his had, you know, put their DNA in, you know, um, to find out a bit more about their family tree and they worked out that his DNA matched this, that that was connected to in a family way, this DNA from the cousins. And so they found the cousins and then worked out, Mm. you know, and arrested this guy. And he's just been put away. Like it's been in the news in the last week. He's, um, you know. Oh, that Kate, that that guy. Yeah, that guy. That's the guy, the Golden State Killer. Oh, right. And it's. Oh, it's such a fascinating book because all of these sort of – it taught me a lot about all of these things. And, look, just to complete the story, um, she died, you know, heartbreakingly and the book was finished and it's been, you know, a New York Times bestseller um, for ages and they were making an HBO documentary about her and about the case and this is before the guy's been actually nailed. She mm. finishes, well, she dies and the book is finished before the killer is caught. And Pat Oswalt and one of the online co-gumshoe detectives do an event in Chicago, which is where um, Michelle McNamara was born. Her family's in the audience. They're shooting it for the um, documentary. And 
somebody asks Patton Oswalt, like, you know, do you think they'll ever catch this guy? He says, yes, I do. I think it's just a matter of time. They all go home from the event to this hotel, go to bed, and at 4 a.m., Patton Oswalt's phone starts going absolutely haywire and it's because the um, California, like Sacramento police, have just announced that they've got... The Golden that, State uh, Killer. Uh, right, yeah. Wow, and, how amazing. And so the, the, the documentary crew is right there recording their reactions to the fact that they've, you know, oh. actually nailed this guy. Anyway. Is the documentary out yet? Yeah, oh, I haven't okay. watched it yet, but right. um, you know it's, it's HBO. Uh, it's called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." So oh, okay. I'll the be same watching the book. that. Uh, okay, yeah, right. Um, so the thing that it really made me think about, though, beyond um, the California of the seventies, this sort of relaxed lifestyle place, constant, just in total terrified lockdown. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of growing up in Adelaide because when I was a kid, there were a few child abductions, you Mm. know, that absolutely any kid, anybody who was a kid in the 70s in Adelaide will hear the name Louise Bell, who was a girl who was taken from her home in the middle of the night. I mean, we all lived in fear of that Mm. happening to us, no matter where we were. It was just this sort of low-lying sense of dread at all times. And it made me think about... um, you know, serial rapists and serial killers and what a phenomenon they were of that time. Because I think now it's I don't I think it's a lot harder to be a serial killer now. You can't because of now I knew that, that whatever whichever way I said that it would sound <laughs> really wrong. Why why do you think it's harder? Because not only is sort of DNA oh, so yeah. much more okay. evolved, right. but also People's movements can be traced, Mm. I mean, Mm. just with such forensic accuracy. And, you know, if you're driving your car, you're getting pinged, you know, when you're on a major highway. You photograph when you Mm. go into a shop to buy rope or, you know, a hammer or whatever, then all of that is on file. Like unless Mm. you are living entirely off the grid, you really cannot be a serial killer. So does that mean that there are... There's still the same number of people out there that would like to be serial killing, but they just can't do it and say so they're not doing it. Who's like, the are latest there serial fewer... killer that you're aware of in Australia? Ivan Milat, like, right. you know, years ago. Uh-huh. So... And really that was at the, I mean, you know, when he was driving around, yeah. you know, his car wasn't being photographed. No, but I guess what he I'm wasn't on is, closed circuit TV in There wouldn't be any reason for there to be fewer people in society with those impulses. Right. So are they just out there, but they just can't do anything about right. it? Right. So, wow. Isn't it, isn't it, I mean, it's it's fantastic to think that really it's not feasible to be a serial rapist anymore. Have you, but, out of curiosity, read the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis? No, I never read it. No, same. And I've, I've, I'm often torn about whether I should because it's such a famous book mm. and when I've read about it, I haven't seen the film either starring Christian Bale, um, I, it sounds clever, like it's, and it, you know, it's, Obviously, it's not brilliantly famous for no reason, but I've, I have just, I just feel like I don't want to go there yeah. because I'm told that it's even though it's sort of black comedy that the violence is yeah. really graphic. Yeah, so I just, I just yeah. I'm put off it. I think I'm in in that camp. If anybody wants to send me a note about that um, to tell me whether I should or should not read American Psycho, I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Yep. Um, and if you're shy to say it to Lee's face, just let me know and I'll, I'll break it to her <laughs> roughly. Um, so anyway, but then it made me think, um, 
I wonder, because the other thing that was absolutely certainly happening at the same time was just epidemic domestic violence um, and the killing of women in intimate relationships. And it made me think, does the fact that we now are much more vigilant and conscious of domestic homicide owe itself in any way to the fact that we have run out of serial rapists and murderers? Like is, it, is that what it's taken us to develop a sense of outrage about women being killed by people they know? Discuss. Mm. Interesting. Um because I think about that, um, you know, like that podcast, um, the first podcast that Hedley Thomas did about a woman yeah. on the northern beaches who just disappears, you know, and people say, think, oh, maybe her husband did it, but people don't really. Yeah, people are like, it's not really any of our business right. what goes on in their marriage. So that's yeah. not very long ago. No, that's that was the 80s. So, so I don't know. Yeah, it, look, it's a really interesting question. Yeah, why? Why has? Why suddenly have we shifted to pay attention to domestic violence? Right. Is it because mm. you know, Ted Bundy is no longer a proposition, so we it's kind of our how... eye falls on another yeah, area right. of widespread violence against women. It's interesting how the kinds of crimes as well change over the years. Like I remember when I first moved to Sydney in the mid nineties, the big crime story was uh, heroin trafficking mm-hmm. around the Cabramatta yep. region of Sydney. Yep. It was a huge, mm-hmm. huge story. Mm. Um, now that obviously, it must that must not be a problem anymore because we never hear about it and we hear about different kinds of drugs and yep. different places and, yep. you know, things of that nature. So it's it's interesting that clearly... If you are certain... a heroin trafficker um, practising in Cabramatta <laughs> and you feel um, silenced or um, in any way cancelled by these thoughtless remarks from Lee Sales, do write in. <laughs> Um, so clearly crime, it must go through, uh, you know, thing, things must become in vogue or out of vogue or they become easier to right. do or less easy to do. Like, like I mean, I haven't looked into it, but I have wondered what's happened with the drug trade during the pandemic because... Been a bit worried about them. <laughs> we just, I'm finding it hard to Guys, get my hands right. on my usual stash. But um, hasn't there been a real, like, upswing in people using, um, like, uh, Uber Eats delivery people for um, taxi for, drivers and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, um, look, I'm sure, but my question is, how are they getting their hands on the drugs? Because there's so little freight right. moving between countries. Yeah, how are you actually getting drugs imported and exported out of places? Yes, you're right. I, sh- I or I'll, are people add that to the list of things I'm worried or about? Or does it mean we're going to see an uptick in? locally manufactured drugs, along with hand sanitizer and um, syringes, is there now going to be more of a market for making drugs in Australia? Like, Let's get a cop on the show and ask these it's, questions. It's a really interesting... Very jubilant. <laughs> get him here. It's a really interesting um, thing. And, I, like, I wondered as well, would we be seeing more presentations to emergency departments of people having to do sudden drug withdrawal because they're in lockdown or they I can't get their hands on drugs? Know. But I have not, not heard anything about huh. that. I don't know. I don't know the answers to any of those questions, but I agree that if only I think, we knew some people who had jobs I that know. involved finding out information and reporting I know. on it. I guess we'll never know, right? <laughs> um, but I always think when I look at the sometimes ridiculous arguments that we have about um, immigration and newly arrived immigrants, like I've always had this theory that like Australia has a kind of really stupid hazing approach to new waves of immigrants because of our immigration patterns since World War II 
have been quite ethnically defined. So we have a, a wave of immigration from Central Europe or we have a wave of then of immigration from Vietnam and then from China um, and then from the Middle East. So we've got this sort of approach of just hazing newcomers and, you know, Pauline Hanson having a go at, you know, we're being swamped by whatever, yeah. insert newly arrived ethnic group here. And we've had it, you know, in Queensland with, you know, African crime gangs is the most recent one, I guess. Um, but, I mean, like back in the uh, 40s, it was Italian crime gangs, wasn't yeah. it? It was like, oh, my God, the mafia. There's always And then there's that... like, yeah, and then the um, the triads, the Vietnamese drug yeah. lords. Like it's just like there's got to be a little pattern of everyone going, oh, my God. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And then everybody settles down and they just turn their attention to hazing the next lot. I mean, it's it's a lovely pattern. Mm. And but, we always just seem to not ever remember that we do that. But it's a fascinating area, isn't it? Like yep. The history of crime and and like who's who's doing it, what kind of crime, um, and what what most terrifies us as well. Do you remember because, also in the nineties home invasions? Do you remember when we used to talk about home invasions? Yes. Um, Can you do a home invasion anymore? I mean. Once again, do write in. I mean, if you think that you've hit upon a way that you can feasibly be a serial killer, like just. But I mean, a home invasion, it was this idea that you, somebody broke into your home while you were in it. Yeah. And then tied you up and terrorized you. Yeah. And took you While you gave them the pin number. Hey, maybe it was, was that associated with the arrival of the ATM? Maybe. Because you needed to terrorize the person to get the. But is that, what, is that what home invasions are about? Getting your getting your pin card? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know Listen, either. I'm just spitballing. Look, I, I just I don't I'm just know. Blue sky. Or was everyone who ever was home invaded? Did they have links to organised crime? Or like you know, because you didn't. You was here like oh, there was a shooting in a suburban street and blah blah blah. Mm. I immediately go drug deal, right? Drug dealers like drive by shooting. I don't I don't know. Is that, is that still a thing? The drive by shooting still happens. You hear of right? drive by yeah. shooting, but sure. I mean, how often does some you know, just random suburban person is out mowing their lawn, lawn and they get knocked off in a drive-by shooting. Right, it's like usually, not, yeah. It, there's the usually a known criminal victim. element involved. Right. This, <laughs> is, this is your view, is it? <laughs> right, okay. Um, which, once again, an absolute pearler of a segue point because I have been uh, listening to and am just unscratchably already addicted to the new Trace series. Uh-huh. Um, so Rachel in this series is um, looking at Nicole Gobbo. Nicola oh, Gobbo. Yeah, right. yeah. And obviously the yarn was broken on 7.30 because you had that interview. Well, not you didn't, but yeah. um, Rachel Brown, um, who presents this podcast, um, did the interview with Nicola Gobbo. It is absolutely intriguing. So it is like a portrait of Nicola Gobbo. There's just extensive interviews with her. Right. But it goes back to how she originally became a police informer and just the anatomy of this completely bizarre thing that she was doing, which is, you know, representing sometimes conflicting crime figures, which is already dangerous mm. enough because she was a, you know, young and highly recognisable barrister with a great reputation for doing bail applications. Like she got a couple of big mobsters off on, you know, in, in unlikely circumstances and then all of a sudden she's like the go-to for your bail application. Next thing you know, she's running around, you know, she's kind of friends with Carl, with Carl Williams, she's friends with Tony Mockbell and she's also talking to the cops and, oh, my God, it, it, hearing about her life just is anxiety-inducing. I just find I'm listening thinking, 
you know, it's like watching a horror movie. You're like, don't go down into the cellar. The gateway to hell's oh. down there. And they're like, okay, let's just put on tiny shorts and go into the uh, forest and ex- explore those mysterious sounds. Don't go! I just don't know if in 2020 I can listen to something that's more anxiety-inducing. Uh, it's really interesting. And right. it, uh, it actually, for me, this series also is a great portrait of the crime scene in Melbourne during the gangland wars. And now I know there's like any bookshop you go to in the airport is just there's a whole rack of, you know, books about the gangland and I just, you know, I'm not interested. I just want, like, you know, no. But <laughs> I'm really enjoying this podcast okay. and um, I find Nicola Gobbo a tr- truly intriguing character because more and more as I listen, I think, because I always just thought she was like super power hungry or just got off on the control or the thrill of it. But the weird thing that is beginning to emerge about her psychological profile is she's just a person who's wanting to please everybody. It's really weird. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. Really, really, really fascinating. I, mm. you know, I listen to her and I think, oh, yeah, okay. Wow. Funny old way of going about it. But anyway, it's a really good podcast and um, I actually can't wait to stop talking to you so I can go and listen to more <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, uh, just to whiff around um, a couple of quick things, um, just speaking of really good podcasts, strong songs that I always talk about, two episodes of recent times where I feel like, I mean, Kirk's just so great. Um, the one about Janelle Monáe, Tightrope, and the one about Queens of the Stone Age, both. Oh, okay. <laughs> Absolutely superb. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> you love him I so love him much. so much. I feel like there was something else that I um, was pleased about being able to um, link into the crime genre. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, I also read a detective fiction book. Oh, proud of me? Yeah. By Sarah Bailey. A uh, very successful Australian writer of crime fiction books. Yeah. It's called Where the Dead Go. Yeah. Um, as you know, it's not really my genre, but um, I found it very Detective engaging. fiction. I, I feel found like that's it... all you've been talking about all year, just about. That's not really true. I'm talking about like, you know, just your straight crime fiction, which is sort of like, you know, hard-bitten cop with a heart of gold <laughs> and a dark secret. Like <laughs> I just find it so formulaic that I don't really go there very often. And indeed, right. this book by Sarah Bailey has... A complicated cop with a so did that Irish dead book you recommended es- to me. Expi- I know. Let's not talk about that. I, think, I don't think it was entirely successful. But um, <laughs> anyway, I'm just I'm just putting it out there. If you're into this sort of thing, it's a really good book. It's well written. It's you know there is a hard bitten cop. She has a heart of gold. She's torn a bunch of different directions and. Um, what? Why is the formula always like that? But it is. I don't know. I don't know. It's enjoyable. It's good. I, like, I like your thoughts. That. For a holiday read, I love that formula. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just entertaining and enjoyable. Um, hey, also, I-, I do I do love seeing female crime writers at the height of their game, and I would say that um, Sarah Bailey is absolutely that. And I love that um, there is now just this whole universe of female cop characters so you know, I think crime fiction is sort of starting to pass the Bechdel test in a very pleasing way. So that is very well would have started that though with Case Garpetta or Agatha Christie, Miss Marvel. Like it's been, it's been around. 
Are you just like, are you just trying to unpick every point that I make? No, you're quite right, of <laughs> no. course. And I show my ignorance of the genre, I suppose, when I make those remarks. Um, anyway, good on you, Sarah Bailey. Good on you, Sarah you Bailey. You write good. Can I ask for another um, bit of audience feedback? I've started watching. What with the crime lords that we're going to be hearing from? <laughs> Hand over fist. <laughs> I'm really interested. Look. I mean, I would actually like to hear from if you really do think that you know how to be a serial killer. Like, <laughs> I don't. I make contact crab. Yeah, because I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> I don't want to hear from the want to be serial killers. You can hear from them. What about when you went through that thing years ago where you were like, I just want to talk to somebody who is a spy, like who works for ASIO, and um, and if I know you can't say anything, but just come up to me and say I'm an accountant. Somebody Remember? did. Yep. Somebody did. And you were like, what? <laughs> yeah, I was like, huh? I'm like, they were like you know, on. I'm an accountant. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Oh, in- incidentally, um, if you missed it, Stephanie Boris, who's a um, great reporter at the ABC Bureau in Canberra, got to go into ASIO the other day oh. and she had a tour from Mike Burgess, oh. who is the uh, head of ASIO, yeah. and she went to this amazing room that they've got for listening in on people, and it's completely on springs. So it's it's a room that is built and is completely on springs so that it is entirely sensitive to vibrations and detecting vibrations. Who were they listening in on? Probably you, like everybody. This, the whole point of this tour was basically a look at our gadgets. Ooh. And so she was, of course, just massively excited at being invited in, as would anyone be. And she got shown all the toys and stuff. And halfway through the tour, you could tell from the piece that she wrote about it, which is very good, um, she's like, why are you doing this? Why am I here? <laughs> and it's partly a bit of a show of strength. Look, this is our gear. We can hear you wherever you are. But also because ASIO is looking for a new cue, like a designer of gadgets. And they this is the best way they can advertise it is just oh. say, look, you know, this is the coolest job in the world. You'll never be able to tell anybody that this is where you work. But So basically this whole like media strategy is about recruitment and finding somebody to be the next cue for ASIO. Oh, how interesting. It's I pretty cool. That piece up. Mm. Um, what I want to hear from people about is, and you know, if there is a crossover between people who used to be heroin dealers in Cabramatta and now are watching Shit's Creek, that would be great because I could tick off a few boxes at once. Um, I want to know. So I've been watching Shit's Creek. It's come highly recommended to me by four or five people, yeah. mm-hmm. all of whom's taste I trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm near the end of season one, and I'm liking it, but I'm not absolutely loving it. Like I don't. Penny feel- hasn't dropped yet. No, I just feel like I don't feel like, oh, I can't wait to get home and watch some more Shit's Creek. Right. But I'm, it's, I'm finding it perfectly okay. I've but seen then, a lot of people really, really smashing through it in lockdown, right? Same. Yeah. And, and a number of people have said to me that when they've got to the end of it, they feel like, oh, I miss those people like my friends, which is how we felt about mm. Friday Night Lights mm. and, um, you know, various other shows, the Americans. And so I think, wow, maybe it, does it hit its stride in like season two or something? Like are they are – they... I don't know because I've watched a couple of episodes and I thought, oh, yeah, this seems okay, you know. Yeah. But I, I didn't get that kind of incredible rush that people are talking about of being invested in it. Yeah. Although Jeremy has watched every series. Like he's absolutely – I've been going to bed pretty early and he's been like staying up oh, watching has it. He? And he's absolutely like – right into it okay because like, his taste is quite similar to mine so yeah. I, must, I should maybe push maybe on. it's just maybe you've got a 
hang around a bit longer. Well, I just remember when we were watching Succession. Remember it hits that flat point yeah. in season one and you have to you have to push through to about episode eight or nine oh, of season one. Eight, 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 eight is where it really just Yeah. And so I just wonder, well. oh, is this is it this scenario that I've just that it's season one, they're still just finding their feet a bit and do I just need to push into season two and then it's gonna suddenly hook me? Look, I'm not an expert, as I said, but I, I it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Mm. Okay, well But right in. I mean to right, sales. right into it. I don't care. At, but... Should sales keep watching Shits Creek? <laughs> At 47 Giles Corrin Crossroads. Or as would say. <laughs> or just leave your shoes on my doorstep. That is so embarrassing, isn't it? That, is, that was quite an amazing story. Wow. So what? So yeah, I don't know. What, I, just to go Send in your questions, listeners. There will be plenty of them. <laughs> just to return to it and then we'll wrap up because we've got to get going. Yeah. Did you, mm. like what did you think would be, like what did you want to happen when you left the shoes? Like what were you hoping he would think when he opened the front door and saw them? I hoped that he would be completely mystified. Right. You didn't want, there was no effect, but you didn't want him to feel like, oh, somebody fancies me so much they've left me their shoes or. I just, I love it when mysterious things happen. Because <laughs> if I found a pair of red shoes inexplicably on my foot, on my um, doorstep, I would think all day about where did they come from? Well, yeah, maybe there's a story, you know, maybe. Who lived here before me? I, I think I'd just right. find it really intriguing. I'd feel completely creeped out. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I yeah, yeah. I realise now that yeah. Were they what sort of shoes? Were they like high heels or they were like Mar- red Mary Jane kind of um, mid heel kind of pumps? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. How old See, were you? I was thirty four. Were you a mother yet? Yes. No. Yes. Yes, I was. I was. I was a. N- I was the mother of a newborn, Your Honour. Oh, gold. That's yeah, I know. Gold. Now I'm just feeling like, wait, maybe he lived with his girlfriend or maybe his wife, and she found them and thought, oh my god. Maybe it like Giles maybe it prompted the end of his relationship. Maybe she brought them in and went, who's are these? And he said, and he went, I've never I don't seen them know. before in my life. She was She's like, like oh, this is the last straw. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> you are done, buddy. Maybe he would have mentioned that shortly when we were. <laughs> oh, you're the I one. Was feeling, oh my god! <laughs> it sounds like you fairly quickly backed away, though, when you dropped that out. Was, I know, wow, I wow, 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 never heard from him again. I don't know if he blocked me, but I wouldn't be surprised. Oh God! Well, it's oh, look, dear. it's not my finest hour. These sales. <laughs> I'm sure you've done stupid it. things. Thanks. I've never left my shoes on somebody's front porch that I haven't known as a some sort of pseudo sexual gesture. <laughs> Sexual me? It wasn't there was nothing sexual about it. Oh my god. All right. Your face right now. Oh my god. All right. Catch you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh, that is a golden story. <laughs>